I want to welcome you back to our study of the book of Galatians and the good news of Christian freedom. For the past several sessions, we have been looking at how Paul's good news, how this gospel message that he has of Christian freedom, we've been looking at how it relates to the question of identity. Who am I? And we've seen how for Paul, the gospel sets us free from external standards and how the gospel gives us a new identity, a new sense of who we are as sons of God, those who are defined by our union with Jesus Christ. Today in this session, I want to shift our attention from how this message that Paul carries, how it relieves us from our guilt and anxiety about who we are, how it gives us a new identity. I want to shift our attention from that and shift it to the question of how this good news shapes the way that we live. In Galatians chapter 5, verse 1, Paul begins a new chapter and really a new theme by making an interesting statement. For freedom Christ has set us free, he says. What is this freedom for which we have been set free? What does it mean to live in freedom for Paul? Now, as Americans, we have our own ideas about freedom as a way of life. I'm from South Carolina, and my home state is also the home state of a Colonel Christopher Gadsden, who was a member of the Continental Army, and in 1776 presented the Continental Congress with a flag that he had made, a flag that had a yellow background and a snake on the front with underneath the snake written, don't tread on me. And this flag has become emblematic of a certain American ideal of freedom and liberty. Freedom for us as Americans is freedom from tyranny. It's a freedom that carries with it the right that we can live how we see fit, that we can use our property in the way that we want, that we can spend our money in the way that we want, that we can worship in the way that we choose. This is American freedom. Justice Anthony Kennedy from the Supreme Court put this ideal of freedom very memorably when he wrote in one of his famous decisions, at the heart of liberty is the right to define one's own concept of existence, of meaning, of the universe, and of the mystery of human life. Somewhat less eloquently, but perhaps just as memorably, another person who characterizes this ideal of freedom is Ron Swanson from the show Parks and Recreation, one of my favorite TV characters. And here's what Ron says about American freedom. The whole point of this country is if you want to eat garbage, balloon up to 600 pounds, and die of a heart attack at 43, you can. You are free to do so. To me, that's beautiful. Now, in some ways, I think Ron is completely correct. It is a beautiful thing to live in a country that guarantees you certain civil liberties, but that's not what Paul means here in Galatians when he talks about the freedom for which we have been set free. For Paul, freedom is not just freedom from tyranny or freedom from coercion or condemnation. 
but it's also freedom for a particular way of life. And that's what we're going to focus on in this session today. What is this way of life, this way of free living for which, he says, we have been set free? And I'm going to call this session, and I'm going to call this way of life, Freedom in the Spirit. I'd like to begin our discussion of this by looking at something strange that Paul says in chapter 5, verse 13. Notice what he says here. You were called to freedom, brothers and sisters, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love become slaves to one another. I want to make a couple observations here about this verse. The first is that the freedom that the gospel gives has a purpose. Paul says that we were called to something in particular. And the second observation is this, that there is a way to deny that purpose, simply being set free from the tyranny of anxiety or guilt or the law doesn't necessarily mean that we'll live in freedom. Paul says that we are supposed to use our freedom in a particular way, not as an opportunity for what he calls the flesh, but instead he contrasts this with a different way, that we are to use our freedom to become slaves to one another through love. This is a very odd comment for Paul to make. Remember, all throughout this letter, he has been contrasting freedom and the good news of freedom with the condition of slavery. But now, all of a sudden, he suggests that Christian freedom is actually meant to take the form of slavery, that we are to become, sometimes translations say servants, but the word in Greek is simply slaves that we are to become slaves to one another. But no matter how strange it might seem, this, this paradox is at the heart of Paul's gospel. And to understand it, we need to pay attention to what he says next, where he contrasts two different ways of living, living according to the desires of the flesh and living by the Spirit. Here's what he says about it in chapter 5 verses 16 through 17. Live by the Spirit, I say, and do not gratify the desires of the flesh. For what the flesh desires is opposed to the Spirit, and what the Spirit desires is opposed to the flesh. For they are opposed to each other to prevent you from doing what you want. Here, Paul is imagining the Christian life as a constant struggle that takes place within the will. The Christians experience two opposed desires within themselves. And it's not the only time that Paul talks this way. If you look in Romans chapters 7 and 8, Paul says something very similar about the struggle between these two parts of the will and how they are opposed to one another, this battle that's going on. And he also uses the same terms in Romans, talking about flesh and about spirit. But what does Paul mean by these terms, flesh and spirit? Uh, some people are a little confused by this. Uh, they think that Paul's language of flesh here seems to suggest that maybe Paul is just uncomfortable with the body or with the kind of appetites or 
desires that we have as people who have bodies. And this wasn't unheard of in the ancient world. In Greek philosophy, in a variety of schools in Greek philosophy, there is, a, there is an unease with the body and a kind of desire to escape the body and its desires. But that's not what Paul has in mind. He's not just talking about what you might need or want as a creature who experiences hunger and certain bodily desires. Nor does Paul mean when he talks about desires of the flesh, nor is he simply limiting this to physical appetites. When Paul uses this language, desires of the flesh, what he's referring to here is quite simply sin. It's a way of life. It's a, it's a desire within the self that is like sin turned in on itself. That's how a lot of theologians in the Christian tradition have described sin and the condition of sin as being incurvatus in se in Latin, turn in on the self. And Paul, when he talks about desires of the flesh, that's what he has in mind. And he describes this way of living and these desires by the kind of effects that it creates. Look what he says in verses 19 through 21. Now the works, the effects of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. It's important to note, this does not mean that people who live this way are somehow being coerced or constrained or that they are succumbing to tyranny. They are free in a sense, free to pursue their own desires. The problem is that these desires that they have are turned in on themselves. They're disordered. And the desires of the flesh lead people into lives filled with conflict and with competition, with rivalry, as Paul says, and hostility toward one another. This is a kind of freedom. You get to do what you want, but it's a, it's a false freedom. St. Augustine, the great theologian from North Africa, way back in the fourth and fifth century, he used to talk about freedom a lot, and he would distinguish between what he called true freedom, vera libertas, and false or empty freedom. In his own book, The Confessions, when he's recounting his life, and he remembers as a young man being caught up with all kinds of desires that he pursued, but that ultimately led him into a life of destruction and despair. Here's what he says about that time in his life. My stiff neck took me further and further away from you, O God. I loved my own ways, not yours. The liberty I loved was merely that of a fugitive. The liberty, the freedom to pursue a life of self-interest. For Augustine, it wasn't real liberty. It was a kind of false freedom. It was nothing more than the freedom of a slave who had been emancipated and was fleeing from a life of goodness. And Paul agrees with what Augustine's saying here. And it's one of the re primary reasons that Paul would also disagree with 
our American habit of equating freedom with simply having the right to do what we want to do. Just doing whatever it is that you desire isn't true freedom for Paul. Sometimes it's nothing more than a different kind of bondage, a bondage to a set of curved-in desires. True freedom for Paul is life in the Spirit. And this is a totally different way of life with very different effects. He describes this life in verse 22. But the fruit, the effects of this life in the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. What is distinctive about these characteristics, these fruits, this way of life? Often we think of these fruits of the Spirit as just kind of generic virtues, you know, that everyone would agree with. It's the kind of thing we tell our kids when we're teaching them how to be nice, that they're to be peaceful and patient and kind and gentle. But actually, these fruits are not universal virtues. They are not the classical virtues of Greek philosophy, justice, temperance, courage, prudence, nor, nor are they the qualities that were prized in the Roman culture of the Galatians. Qualities like honor, strength, eloquence in speech, dignity. And they're not even really what comes to mind for us as Americans when we think of a life of liberty. This isn't really how we would tend to describe it. No, there's something strange, something countercultural about this life in the Spirit and its fruits. And what's interesting about it is it is a way of life that follows a particular pattern. There's a model for it. Really, it's a way of life that follows the pattern of a person, Jesus Christ. Think about it. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness. Who do these describe? Well, they describe the man Jesus. And that makes sense. Because for Paul, life in the Spirit, living by the Spirit, is describes the life of a person who is being led by the Spirit of Jesus Christ, the Spirit of the Son. And this is the freedom that Paul says we were called to. For freedom, you have been set free. And this is what that freedom looks like, what it means to live by the Spirit. This is true Christian freedom. And one person, one person who understood this really well was the German Protestant reformer, Martin Luther. And right near the beginning of Luther's theological career and his writings, he wrote a very important treatise called Freedom of a Christian. A lot of people now look at this and see it as one of the greatest, clearest, most succinct, and most powerful summaries of Luther's understanding of the gospel, the freedom of a Christian. And true freedom, Christian freedom for Luther, this freedom of the gospel was summed up for him in two principles. Principle number one was this. A Christian, says Luther, is a perfectly free Lord of all, subject to none. 
It, Luther says this because he thinks that Christians, by faith, that they share the same identity of Christ. They have been made one with Christ. Luther uses the image of a wedding ring, that everything that belongs to Christ now belongs to the Christian. And therefore, she is totally and perfectly free, Lord of all, subject to none, subject to no shame, subject to no anxiety, subject to no guilt, no fear. But that's not where the gospel ends. That's not the end of Christian freedom. There's more. There's a second principle for Luther, and that's this. A Christian is a perfectly dutiful servant of all, subject to all. Now, this might sound like Luther's just saying the complete opposite of what he just said, but in fact, he's describing the life that a Christian has been freed to live, a life of service and love in the model of Jesus Christ. Here's how Luther describes the true life of Christian freedom. As our Heavenly Father has in Christ freely come to our aid, we also ought freely to help our neighbor, and each one should become, as it were, a Christ to the other, that we may be Christ's to one another, and Christ may be the same in all, that is, that we may be truly Christians. This is the good news of Christian freedom. Not that we have just been set free from something, but that we have been set free for something, for a particular way of life. The conviction shared by Martin Luther and by the Apostle Paul and by St. Augustine is that the one person the one person who embodies for us what it means to be truly and perfectly free is the man Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus the Christ. He is the one truly, perfectly free person. And the way that he used his freedom, the life that he lived, that is the expression of a truly free life. The gospel for Paul the good news is not only that we have been set free from the law, from condemnation, that we have been set free for something. The gospel is an invitation to share in the freedom of Jesus. I want to thank you for joining me for this session to talk about the gospel as the life lived in the spirit, the life of true freedom. Please join me again in our next session as we think about not only what it means for one person to be set free and to live in freedom, but what it looks like for a whole community to live in freedom together.